Welcome, friends. Thank you for joining us for the Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm. My name is Gwen DeSelm, and I have the privilege of being the host of this weekly podcast that brings biblical teaching to everyday people in ways we can understand and then put into practice. Our teacher is Dave DeSelm. Dave spent over 40 years in pastoral ministry and was the founding senior pastor of a church called Fellowship in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Currently, he is the executive director of Dave DeSelm Ministries, offering help and hope to everyday pastors through coaching and other resources. You can find out more about us at davedeselmministries.org. Well, the book of Revelation is thought of as being primarily about the end times, when Christ returns and makes all things new. But Revelation isn't just about the future. It's also very much about today, giving us courage and hope to persevere through the challenges that we face in our lives. The book begins with a mind-blowing vision of the risen Christ, the one who was with us in it all. Let's join Dave now for Christ in our crisis. So let's open our Bible, shall we? The book of Revelation. <laughs> Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at several sections of it here, but we're going to begin by picking it up in verse 9, place where we left off last week. Revelation 1, verses 9 to 11. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, a voice which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now in a moment we're going to come back to that text and we're going to see who was it that was speaking to John and when he turned, what did he see? But I thought we ought to do well here even though we had some introductory comments last week just to kind of fill in a few more blanks that you might have in your thinking about this. So looking at the back of your bulletin, just a couple of things for you to fill in before we get down to the meat and potatoes of this thing a little deeper in the teaching time. First of all, just a word about the setting in Revelation. Notice the two first two words here, verse 9, I, John... Now, though the argument has been raised by some liberal scholars in recent years, the fact of the matter is we have no good reason to not believe that this was, in fact, John, the brother of James, the beloved uh, disciple, the one that we're all familiar with. This is who it was. And this is strongly supported by early church fathers. These names may resonate in your memory. Names like Justin Martyr, Clement, Irenaeus, Eusebius, Tertullian, they believed full well that this was John himself, and they wrote in the, in the second century uh, A.D. So the early church believed this was John himself who wrote this, not some other John, and, and I agree with them in this. This was the one that Jesus loved. This is the one that walked with him for three years. This is the one who saw amazing things. John was probably the youngest of the disciples, perhaps in his late teens, and he saw this incredible Savior, but this is the same John who with Mary was at the foot of the cross and saw his master die. This was the same John who on Easter morning peered into the empty tomb and belief began to grow in his heart. This is the same John who later that day and for 40 days that followed saw Jesus on multiple occasions, ate with him, 
experienced him, talked with him, questioned him. John saw him. This was the John who saw Jesus ascend literally to heaven. This was the John who heard from the angels the same Jesus shall return. This was the John who experienced Pentecost and the Holy Spirit fell on him and the other 120 in power. This was the John that saw the church grow by thousands. One estimate is that within the first 25 years, Jerusalem, a city at its largest, which held 200,000, had over 100,000 Christians. Truly, they had filled the city. This was that John. John had witnessed it all. But now the time, if you want to make, I hope you write in your Bible. Do you do that? You may want to write in there, John the Apostle, you know, so you know this in the future. You might also want to write here the date, roughly for the uh, book of Revelation is 95, about 95 A.D., John is all who's left of that little band who'd walk with Jesus and learn from Jesus. All the rest of them had died. To a man, they had died martyrs' deaths. In terrible suffering, they had not recanted. You ever thought about that? You know, a man may sometimes trumpet lies if he can get something out of it. Very few people will die for a lie. And after all those years, every one of those disciples said, It's still true. Take my life if you want to, but it's still true. And they died. John alone was alive. And it says he was on the barren island of Patmos. And why was John on Patmos? Why was he there? We know that he'd penned his epistle earlier. He'd written three postcards which had been uh, stored for us at the end of the New Testament, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We know that he'd moved around Asia Minor encouraging churches. We know that he'd probably been the pastor of the church at Ephesus for a while. Why was John now on this, in this penal colony, this terrible island called Patmos? Well, he tells us that in verse 9. He says, I was there because of the word of God and testimony of Jesus. And let me take a moment to explain the political situation here because this would make a lot of sense when you start reading Revelation and understanding what is being said to these people if you understand what's going on at that time, okay? Early on, it was relatively safe and simple to be a Christian in the midst of Roman domination, this was a time, if you remember from your history books, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Rome was conqueror from north to south, up to the British Isles, down to Egypt, from Spain in the west to over all, nearly India in the east. Rome was everywhere. Rome was all-powerful. Because of Rome's strength, there were incredible roads. All roads led to Rome. There was safety and security, which was a wonderful place for the gospel to go forth. And God in his wisdom took advantage of that, and the gospel went out on these Roman roads. The Roman authorities, in fact, were great protection. You who are familiar with your New Testament know how, on multiple occasions, Paul's life was saved by the Roman government, because he was a citizen. But toward the end of the first century, when Revelation is being penned, Rome is beginning to lose her grip on the world. Her far-flung empire is draining her coffers. The emperors themselves and their courts have become more and more extravagant. New taxes are being levied throughout the whole kingdom, and the people are getting antsy under all this. Rome answers with the sword, and things become even more difficult. It was no easy thing for Rome to maintain unity and cohesiveness in this widened empire with all these cultures, languages, and people. But a concept arose which seemed to be a good unifying factor, and that concept was called Caesar worship. Here was the deal. It was believed early on that the Roman emperor epitomized the spirit of Rome. But it didn't take long as time went on before this evolved into a belief that as the emperors had the power of the gods, 
Perhaps they were, in fact, gods. And it was this popular belief that led to a mandate that began to evolve near the end, near the middle of, of that uh, century. And that was that once a year, every single person had to appear before a magistrate, pinch some incense, drop it into a burner, and say the words, Caesar is Lord. Now, you could go out after that and worship any god you wanted. They didn't mind that. But this was an act of unification and an act of loyalty. Caesar is Lord. Now, how do you think that went with Christians? To have to bow and say, Caesar is Lord. Early on, this wasn't enforced too much. One of the emperors who began, of course, he was crazy. You perhaps have heard of the emperor Nero. He ruled from 54 to 68. He began to enforce it, and during his reign, both Paul and Peter were killed. But most of the persecution was right around Rome itself. The next emperors who followed didn't really enforce this. And then there arose one near the end in around 90 AD who was a madman, but he was also sane enough. His name was Domitian. If you want to write in the margins of your Bibles, the emperor Domitian. Domitian was the emperor there, and he was a cold-hearted egotist, and he determined, you will bow before me. And now the persecution began to spread empire-wide, as those fearful of his ruthlessness demanded people to bow. As you can imagine, he especially targeted Christians and Jews, because they wouldn't say Caesar is Lord. And the Christians began to die. And now as you look back at your history books, now you'll know why the Christians were thrown to the lions why the Christians fell into the gladiator's sword, and why the Roman crowds cheered. You ever wonder about that? Why did they cheer the death of Christians? Because Christians were traitors. Christians, in fact, were called atheists. They did not believe in the emperor's deity. They were traitors to Rome. And so when the propaganda machine got cranked up, Christians were the enemies of the state. And thus it was, the Christians began to die by the hundreds and then the thousands. Apparently, in one of these roundups, John was arrested. Why he was exiled and not executed, we aren't told. But the fact of the matter was, he was sent at 90 years old, if you can imagine this, he was 90 years old, to this barren penal colony to work the quarries in the island of Patmos. Patmos was a Roman penal colony in the Aegean Sea, 40 miles off the coast of Asia Minor. Imagine for a moment what it must have been like uh, for John here on this barren island. Here he is under the ready whips and watchful eye of the Roman overseers. He's quarrying stone to be used for Roman roads. 90 years old. Terrible conditions, minimal food and water, had to sleep in a cave. You can imagine how brutal it must have been. And in the midst of all of this, in the midst of this hellhole, Jesus comes to John. This is where John is. And before I mention to you the Jesus that John saw, let me give you a second point quickly here. And that is the symbolism in Revelation, because again, you're going to lose your ball in the weeds if you don't get a clear thought on this thing here. According to verse 1 here of chapter 1, it says, God commissioned John to show his servants what must soon take place. And in the original Greek text there, the word it means to signify or set in symbols. And this is a very key interpretive uh, comment as it relates to understanding Revelation. The book of Revelation is of a genre of literature called apocalyptic literature. Now let me explain that to you. 
unlike his gospel which he penned or the epistles which he wrote, he would write this in a totally different way, which is quite familiar to people in that day. Down through the years, whenever God's people had gone through struggles, apocalyptic literature had been written to encourage them. Apocalyptic literature was highly symbolic, very violent, but it showed basically that God wins. Good will triumph, in fact, over evil, but it was highly symbolic. If you're familiar with the book of Daniel, the second half of the book of Daniel is a chunk of Old Testament apocalyptic literature. Highly symbolic. So John wrote in a style familiar to his people at that day. Highly symbolic. The drama between God and Satan, good and evil, was in pictures. This was so big to John that mere description couldn't do it justice. So, when we go through this in the weeks ahead, you've got to keep in mind, this is apocalyptic style. And that genre of literature is highly symbolic. Does that mean that we're not to take Revelation literally? The answer is, it depends. Some we can take quite literally. Other is highly symbolic, and the fact that there's a lot of gray area in between is what lends itself to so much debate about the book. Now, quickly, in apocalyptic literature, there are several things just to keep in mind. Just, you may want to write three words on your notes. Objects, creatures, and numbers. Objects, creatures, and numbers. Uh, let me show you an example of apocalyptic literature. We're going to read about this in just a moment. Look down to verse 16, okay, quickly. This is a description of, of Jesus, the Jesus that John saw. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining on all his points. Now i got to ask you a question. Do you think that when John turned around, he saw Jesus standing there, and there was this big sword sticking out of his lips? No. This is apocalyptic literature. What is John saying? Well, you do them. Let me put your thinking cap on. What does a sword represent in John's day? Hmm? Power, authority, might. And the power of his word, and John was saying, I saw one that, oh, how do I describe it? I saw, I saw this one there, and when he spoke, the power of his words, you, you can't imagine what he looked like to me. All I can say is the sword came out of his mouth, you see. That's how you understand this. John can't describe this, Jesus. But he also was writing in an imagery that would be to say to his people, oh, it's more powerful than anything humanly imaginable, this sword. The point I'm saying to you is, um, you're going to really get in trouble if you think, boy, Jesus really looked weird. He had this sword sticking out of his lips. Okay? Remember, uh, we're going to meet some other uh, strange creatures. We're going to meet the beast out of the sea. We're going to be introduced to the great whore of Babylon. What is that? Huh. One way to understand apocalyptic literature, and you can do this, is um, political cartoons. For example, again, let me ask you to work with me on this. If you were to open the editorial page uh, after November, and you were to see in the editorial page a donkey rejoicing and an elephant weeping, which political party did well? Huh? Come on. Who? Democrats. Sure, the Democrats did well. Now, do you think to a person who lives in the South Sea Islands, they would be able to understand that imagery? No. See, you're used to seeing the imagery, and it made a very clear picture to you. The Democrats won, the Republicans lost. Let me give you another one here. Come on, think with me now. How about if back in the 80s, try this one for size, you saw an eagle rejoicing over a fallen bear, and the bear lay over a crumbled wall. All right, think about it. 
Turn the person next to you. What, what, is, what does he get means? What do you mean? The eagle over this bear, and this bear is, is laying on a crumbled wall. Back in the 80s, what would it have shown you? The Berlin Wall crushed the power of the Soviet Union. The bear uh, deadened. And here's the triumphal United States overall. See how it works? This is part of the imagery to understand in Revelation. We'll talk about that, okay? Now, besides objects, you have to pay attention to some numbers. You're going to find certain numbers that are highly important. Numbers like 7, 10, and 12, and multiples of this. Let me give you 7, for example. The number 7 appears 54 times in this book. There are seven lampstands and seven stars. We'll see the seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of wrath. There'll be a beast with seven horns and seven eyes. The fact of the matter is, God seems to have marked up the number seven from early on as very significant of completeness and perfection. There were seven days of creation. So many commentators are convinced that when we read about seven here, it's talking about complete or perfect for example, I'll show you a picture of it. Look at verse uh, 4. Grace and peace to you from him who is and was and who is to come in from the seven spirits before his throne. Many commentators believe that's not necessarily seven individual spirits. That is the perfect Holy Spirit. So what you have is you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, but it's called the sevenfold spirit to show this is the perfect Holy Spirit, not necessarily seven unique spirits. Okay, see how it works? Okay. Now, in contrast, earlier in that same verse, for it says, to the seven churches. That we take literally. Do you see how this can get dicey? We've got seven literal churches, but the sevenfold spirit, one literal, one symbolic. That's what I want you to understand, okay? So we've got objects, we've got creatures, we've got numbers, and I'll do my best to explain that to you as we move on. You're listening to The Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSelm. Dave will be back to continue his message in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, please take just a minute to rate, review, and subscribe, and then help others find us by sharing this podcast with your friends and family. You can also support us in this ministry. Just go to davedeselministries.org and click on the Donate button. Dave DeSell Ministries is here to resource everyday pastors as they seek to equip everyday people to become everyday disciples. And one of the primary ways that we do that is through coaching. In the coaching relationship, pastors and leaders have the opportunity to receive individualized, practical guidance from Dave on the issues that they're facing in life and ministry. These one-on-one sessions offer a safe place to discuss some of the unique challenges you're facing with someone who's a bit further down the road of ministry. If you'd like to learn more about coaching, go to davedeselmministries.org or email us at info at davedeselmministries.org. Now, let's get back to Dave and the rest of today's teaching. Now, let's get to the heart of this thing here, and that is the Savior in Revelation. Looking back at chapter 1, let's continue on as I read to you verses 12 to 16. John has just heard this voice. He's on Patmos, remember. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice 
was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. Now I could spend a lot of time detailing out this description, but just real quick some of these elements of what this Jesus looked like. The robe that he was wearing was the descriptive apparel of two different individuals, a priest and a king. And the sash showed utter power. So you've got, I saw one, he was my priest. He intercedes before the Father for me and my sins, but he's also my king. I saw this priest king in all power. Notice his head and hair. They were white as snow. Now this is perhaps one of the most puzzling parts of, of this picture of Jesus. Because in our day, white hair is not necessarily seen as something to be rejoiced in or celebrated. It's something to be avoided, isn't it? It's a sign of aging or infirmity. In fact, the only thing worse than having white hair is having no hair. Right, sure. Now, the Bible is very, very different from this. For example, uh, just write down in your notes Proverbs 16.31. It says this, he, uh, the Gray hair is a crown of splendor. It is attained by a righteous life. Gray hair is a crown of splendor. This, this is a proverb that is becoming one of my personal favorites as, as years go by. Um, the image of the Messiah being white-haired comes from, and you didn't turn to, but write down the book of Daniel, chapter 7 and verse 9, the Ancient of Days. You ever heard that phrase? The Ancient of Days. This was a messianic picture of the Messiah, white-haired. Here's the point. White hair speaks of incredible wisdom, and when he speaks of the white-haired Jesus, he's saying he has the wisdom of all eternity from the beginning to the end. That's what it says in verse 8. From the alpha, that's the first letter of the Greek alphabet, to the omega, that's the last of the Greek alphabet. He has it all. I saw this one. And the wisdom and the insight, and I realize at a glance that he knows everything. This was the one who has no mysteries. He knows how things got started. He knows how things are going to turn out. He knew who won the last election before it happened. He knows who's going to win the next election. He knows when Jesus came the first time. He knows when Jesus is going to come the second time. He knows when the Cubs last won the pennant. He knows when Jesus is going to come the next time. <laughs> Here's the point. In the midst of this hellhole, in the midst of all this fear, he said, I saw someone who knows. And he's got it all under control, and he's not a bit nervous. This Jesus, I saw him. He says, and he sees, Jesus sees everything. That's what it says in the eyes in verse 14. Eyes. Oh, he said, if you could have seen his eyes. His eyes just flashed. I remember those eyes, John must have thought, when I walked this earth, those eyes of compassion. Those eyes of tenderness, but I, I saw those eyes flash at the money changers in the temple, and I saw those eyes flash. What eyes? They see everything. Those eyes see me and my suffering. Those eyes see what I'm going through. Those eyes see when I make a courageous stand for the Savior. Those eyes see when I'm mistreated. Those eyes see it all. And those eyes will judge, and that's his feet. The enemies were always under a king's feet, and bronze speaks of power. Those powerful feet will judge what those eyes will see. Those feet will judge. And his voice, no one's going to argue with him. That voice, I hear the ocean, John said, but that voice was above those waters. This voice spoke authoritatively. 
The stars in his hand, we're told later on in this text, were the angels, perhaps better understood as the messengers or even the pastors of the churches. And John was saying to those pastors, you know what, pastors of those seven churches, he's got you in his hands. He's got you in his hands. And he walks among the seven churches. Those are the lampstands, which we'll read about momentarily. He's in full control, full control. This is the Jesus that John saw. And he summarizes it all in verse, the end of verse 16. His face was shining like the sun. Oh, John said, I remember seeing him on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, and I saw him in his Easter glory, but now I saw him, and oh, you should have seen him. You should have seen him. This incredible Jesus. Friends, this is our God. This is our Lord. This is Jesus. And John saw him, and his response, John just was undone. Verse 17, I saw him, and I fell at his feet as though dead. Now, I've not begun to exhaust all the implications of this, but let me give you three points of application here as you look to turn the corner. Here's the first one. All of us end up on Patmos sooner or later. For John, Patmos was a place that symbolized disappointment and isolation. It seemed to speak of the death of dreams and the blockading of a future. It's important for us to read this thing and have a point of application that we're going to be in Patmos someday. Some of you are in Patmos today. It seems like your world has come to an end. Illness, sickness, financial trauma, relational breakdown. You're on Patmos. And you walked in here today desperate for hope. And you're just like John. It just seems like things aren't working out. I mean, I thought I was, I thought I was God's kid. I, I thought you were going to take care of me. I'm on Patmos. Here was John, the disciple that Jesus loved. He's there. And for any of you who are there now, and for all of us who will one day be on Patmos, friends, you're going to be on Patmos. A loved one's going to die. The disease is going to hit. The heartbreak's going to happen. And you're on Patmos. And the fact of the matter is, when I'm on Pat I've been on Patmos. Have you? When I'm on Patmos, i got one prayer. Get me out of here. Send a boat, send a helicopter, I don't care. Get me off Patmos, right? But it's important for you to understand the second point. Patmos was the place where Christ was unveiled. Did you ever thought about that? In the midst of Patmos was where he saw Jesus. And there's a message here that I want you to see, but it's this. You can never be in so forsaken a place that the Lord can't seek and find you. This is big, guys. This is the heart of today's teaching of Christ in your crisis. Can we read that together? Because this is so big. Let's read this out loud together, shall we? You can never be in so forsaken a place that the Lord can't seek and find you. And for some of you in this room, you feel like you're all alone and nobody understands and it's never going to turn around. You're wavering in your faith as a Christian 
Or maybe you haven't yet come to faith in Christ and you think, if God's so great, why do I see bad things happen to his people? Remember John. And remember also that it was on Patmos where John met Jesus. I want you to encourage the person next to you, okay? Here's, ready? Turn to somebody and say, Christ is closer to you than you think. Would you do that? Turn to somebody. Christ is closer to you than you think. Boy, that's so true. That is so true. He's closer to you than you think he is. And to all of you who feel so alone, so isolated, he's right there. Number three, Christ is seen by those who turn to him and touches those who fall at his feet. Verse 12, I turned to see the voice. You may want to underline that. I turned to see. Listen. I am convinced that an awful lot of people never see Jesus in their Patmos. You know why? They never turn. This is why worship is so key. This is why chapters 4 and 5 in the book of Revelation, before all the stuff happens, are so important. You're going to have to see Jesus in all of this if you hope to make it through it. But in order to see him, you're going to have to turn to him. And in order to turn to him, you're going to have to bow before him and worship him. Worship is so important for the saints as they have suffered and as perhaps we face the potential of suffering. If we aren't worshipers, we're not going to make it because the Patmos experiences that are going to come our way and the Bible says increasingly they're going to come our way. If we can't see Jesus in the midst of them, then we're not going to make it. We're going to have to see him and we're going to have to worship. John turned and he worshiped. He fell at his feet. Verse 17, he fell at his feet. What does it mean to fall at his feet? One of the books I'm reading is by Billy Graham's daughter named Ann Graham Lotz. She suggests several points of this falling at his feet as a dead man. These are her thoughts that I share with you. She said, first of all, a dead man is silent. She comments, I've never heard a dead man say anything. She said, when John fell at his feet as though dead, as if he was saying no more discussion. No more argument. I fall in silence before you, my Lord. I fall in silence. No more rationalizing of my behavior. No more excuses for my sin. I fall in silence. Secondly, she says a dead man is still. A dead man is silent. A dead man is still. And Graham Lott says, it means you no longer struggle with your way instead of his way. You no longer run ahead of him. You no longer lag behind him. A dead man is still. And finally, she says, a dead man is surrendered. Lying at Jesus' feet. You wonder if John thought about Paul's great verse in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live by faith, I live in the Son of God. He lives, not me. I'm a dead man. I'm silent. I'm still. I'm surrendered. And John, having bowed, Jesus now touches him. Get up. And the picture of tenderness here, of the Savior touching him. And he says two words, and with this we prepare to close. Two words. He placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. 
I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. And the first word that some of you need to hear today is just what John heard, and it's this. Stop being afraid. I know you're on Patmos. I know it looks like the world is out of control. I know that you feel so alone. I know that you feel like there's no future for you. Don't be afraid. I am with you on Patmos. See me for who I am. Fall at my feet, and I'll whisper to you as well, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It appeared that Rome was in charge. Not so. It looked like Caesar had the last word. Not so. Jesus Christ was there, in control, sovereign. And as then, so today, Christ is Lord. Listen to me, friends. Jesus is the ruler over all. And one day, one day, every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to suggest, every knee, even the most proud and stubborn knee, and every tongue, even the most hesitant tongue, and they're going to have to declare, Christ is king. Christ is king. And when we have that sense, then we can face our Patmos. The x-ray does not have the last word. Death does not have the last word. Jesus, death, I've been there, done that. Hadn't slowed me down a bit. I got the keys. Dad gave them to me. <laughs> Nothing has the last word. Christ is there. And in the midst of whatever you're going to face in this next year, I just want you to keep coming to worship, okay? And when you're here, when you're here... I don't care what the guy next to you is doing. I don't care what the woman next to you is doing. I want you to fall at his feet. And I'm not talking about bodily prostration as much as I'm talking about an attitude of your heart. Stillness and silence and surrender. And Jesus, I need to see you today for another week. Stop being afraid. Second, verses 18 and 19. Write, therefore, what you have seen. What is now and what will take place later. What is seen, what is now, what is to take place later. Probably this is the three parts of Revelation. What you've just seen, write about the picture you've seen. What is now, these are the seven literal churches, and what is going to be taking place in the future. The mystery of the seven stars. Sometimes the Revelation interprets itself. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lanterns is this. The seven stars are the seven angels, messengers, pastors of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And next week, we launch into the seven churches. But here's the last point. Pass on the truth. John, you got a job to do. What do you think? Just because you're 90 years old and on an island working in a quarry that I'm done with you yet? If I was done with you, John, I would have taken you home. Just look like I took home everybody else. i got a job for you to do, and the job for you is this. I want you to pass on the truth. And he would say the same thing to us. Stop being afraid. Pass on the truth. Stop being afraid. 
pass on the truth. Let's say that together. Stop being afraid, pass on the truth. Say it again. Stop being afraid, pass on the truth. That's the theme of Revelation right there. And for all these chapters, stop being afraid, pass on the truth. Thank you so much for joining us for The Word for Everyday Disciples with Dave DeSalm. If you'd like to let Pastor Dave know how this message has blessed you, send him an email at dave at davedeselmministries.org. Then join us next time as we look to God's Word for help and hope as we follow Jesus every day.